This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Jay Clayton spent much of his career at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, advising market participants on regulatory enforcement. After serving as a clerk for the Honorable Marvin Katz of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. In 2017, he became the chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Since he was sworn in, he's focused on finishing regulation best interest to replace the fiduciary standard for investment advisors rejected by the courts, and he's looking at allowing retail investors access to private investments. He's also facing new regulatory challenges from social media and how it can influence markets and the challenges posed by digital age technologies. He joins me now for a closer look. Let's start with Elon Musk, because it's hard to ignore Elon and his recent problem with the commission. It highlights a new issue for regulators, social media. To remind listeners, Musk sent a tweet saying that he had funding secured to take Tesla private, causing such a spike in the company's share price that trading was halted temporarily. You began an investigation into this immediately, and the settlement was swift. Why did you act so quickly on this, and what are the highlights of the settlement? Well, uh, Chairman Levitt, let me just first of all say it's nice to be back with you, um, and uh, I'll turn to the enforcement matter that you mentioned and say that you know, at the commission, um, I am so pleased with the people we have leading the enforcement division, um, our co-directors, Stephanie Avakian and Steve Pekin, and, and the way they approach um, matters of the day. Um, this particular matter, it's difficult for me to comment on with specificity because it's still pending. Um, but in terms of moving quickly, um, that is a priority of mine um, across our enforcement division. Um, in matters of uh, public attention, uh, moving quickly is often the best course. Uh, said another way, waiting years and years um, to remedy a current wrong is not um, a good course. But let me also turn to another area where moving quickly is really important, and that is when retail investors have lost money. And I'm proud of our enforcement division because they're moving quickly in that area too. Um, getting somebody their money back today is so much better than getting their money back four years from now. In the Musk settlement, uh, is there an admission of guilt by uh, Musk, Tesla, or even the board? The, the settlement you reference is like many of our settlements. It's referred to by practitioners as a no-admit, no-deny settlement. What that means is the person settling uh, doesn't have to admit, but is not able to deny um, the basis for the settlement. Is it possible to get beyond that? 
Well, you know, um, Chairman, you you know this so well because um, uh, you uh, you were a, you were very effective in these situations. There, when you have an enforcement matter um, and you take it to court, it is a blunt instrument. It may be your only available recourse, but a court proceeding where you get to a final judgment of guilt or innocence is a blunt practice, not just in terms of the judgment, guilty or innocent, but in terms of the remedy. Um, Very often, a blunt instrument is not the most effective instrument for our markets. Um, And we recognize that. If it's the only instrument available, we'll use it. But in a settlement where you have various terms, including um, what the subject of the settlement is willing to admit to or not, you can craft a better result for our markets and our investors. Does uh, Musk have to pay the fine personally, or can his insurance company pay for it? I'm, again, I can't get into the details because it's pending, but I, I, what, what you're raising with that question, uh, Chairman, is individual responsibility, and do you have real individual responsibility? Individual responsibility is very important to me, and it's important to the leaders of our enforcement division. Uh, if you don't mind, can I comment on why? Sure. When I was a practitioner, if someone asked, hey, Jay, can I engage in this activity? And I wanted to caution them and say, you know what? You really need to think twice. Over the line, close to the line, you don't want to get into that gray area. If I said, you know, XYZ company had to pay a fine for doing that, it may have resonated with them. If I said Ms. Y or Mr. X got into deep personal trouble for doing just that, it always resonated with them. So, you know, individual accountability in terms of going after a person who has committed a wrongdoing is important, but it also has, I believe, a greater deterrent effect on others who might think about acting improperly, focusing the mind. Uh, I think it's a it's an important part of our regulatory and enforcement ecosystem to have individual accountability. Is Musk still eligible to vote his shares for the next chairman? Again, I, 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 you're asking a lot of good questions. I'm not going to get into the specifics of this, but the, the governance remedies that were put in place um, are something that the commission, all five of us, uh, fully supported. Jay, what, if any, action has been taken with respect to the lead director, audit committee chair, or other board members in light of their oversight and continue explicit support of Elon Musk? Uh, Chairman Levitt, I'm I'm not aware of specific action uh, that's been taken. Do you think that this in any way impacts Musk's board membership on any other public company or one doing an IPO? That's an, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, what, what we're looking at here is a moment in time. We'll have to see how these things evolve. Does the Musk case provide any guidelines or lessons for other company leaders about responsible use of social media? Look, I think that company leaders, CEOs, um, understand our securities laws 
and um, the responsibility of communication uh, to the marketplace. And that when you communicate to the marketplace, and you know, I, again, I don't, I don't like to discuss specific matters, but I put out a statement in connection with the uh, uh, agreed must settlement uh, that affirmed this. When corporate leaders speak to the marketplace, they need to speak fairly <clears throat> and without omitting information um, that's necessary for the statements they make to be true. And that's, that is a well understood part of our securities markets. It's served us well for years. When you speak to the marketplace about important information, you have to do so in a way that's comprehensive. Now you say that the SEC and Congress have taken a lot of steps to promote capital formation and you've an ambitious capital formation agenda ahead. What specifically have you done, and what's on your current agenda? So we've done a number of things that I believe have made access to capital uh, smoother and less risky for those seeking capital without in any way degrading investor protection. Um, we have shortened the time that companies coming to the public markets are exposed to um, their competitors and to market vagaries while s without in any way reducing the information that investors receive in connection with a public offering. The, the time span from the announcement of a potential IPO to the pricing of that IPO um, has shrunk significantly but there's still plenty of time for the marketplace to digest the information. I, I consider that to be a positive uh, development. And we're looking at, um, we're looking at other measures uh, to simplify the disclosure rules, but at the same time, make the disclosure more meaningful and clearer to investors. You hope to expand the ability of companies that are contemplating raising capital to test the waters. How would that work? Well, testing the waters is the term that, that securities practitioners use for a company or its representatives contacting potential investors and saying, what do you think about the value of this company as a public company? Um, that has been restricted for some time. It goes back to uh, the communication systems of yesterday. In the communications systems of today and um, the, the ability of information to be disseminated quickly, uh, that restriction really doesn't make a lot of sense. It becomes readily apparent um, once a public announcement is made that a company is considering going public and people start talking about pricing. Um, what you have to do is talk about that pricing in a responsible way. And if you're able to talk about that uh, pricing in a responsible way, you probably get to a better price when it's time to go public, a price that um, better reflects uh, the market's interest in the company and you don't have significant swings in price uh, at the time of the IPO. So I, I hope that's a, a clear response to your question. It is. In the first quarter of this year, California, Massachusetts, and New York received more than 78% of all equity financing for venture capital-backed 
companies. Is there anything the commission can do to help capital flow to other areas of the country? So that statistic uh, concerns me because uh, we have much, much of our venture capital and early stage capital is, uh, is concentrated in several geographic areas uh, in the United States. Now, is that a function of uh, where people who deploy capital live? I would say a bit. Is it a function of where uh, the, human, the human capital talent is? I would say a bit. But we have many areas in our country, Chairman Levitt, where we have really talented individuals who could use capital. You know, I, I, as I look down you know, the Midwest, for example, I see you know, universities that have you know, tremendous uh, talent, just like our great universities on the West Coast and, and here on the East Coast. And I, I would say to myself, why don't we have pools of venture capital that are building up around those areas? Um, and while our tools are limited uh, in that area, it's uh, an issue that I've brought some attention to. I want to continue to do so and figure out ways where we can have that kind of uh, venture and early stage capital in places in America other than uh, California, New York, Massachusetts. In a recent speech, you said we should be sure there's appropriate framework to support smaller public companies in secondary market liquidity. Precisely what can the commission do? Well, that's the question that we're asking, is what can we do? Because we know we have an issue here. We know that the liquidity for smaller public companies um, is not what we would want it to be. Much of the trading in those companies <clears throat> happens very close to the end of the day. Um, and uh, we just, we, we need to continue to look at this because if you don't offer liquidity in your marketplace for smaller and medium-sized public companies, the attractiveness of becoming a public company goes down. What, what the promise for people who own a company to take it public is, you're going to get liquidity. It's one of the it's one of the attractive natures of attractive aspects of being a public company. And if we're not we're not having a system that provides that liquidity, we need to think about it. Have you ever asked yourself whether some of the companies that are going public are really ready to go public? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that's a uh, that's a question all those companies should ask themselves. There are some companies, of course, in a sample size of 4,600, 5,000 that have gone public and probably should not have. But I will say this, um, and I hope you agree with me on this. I think many practitioners do. The process of becoming a public company often makes the company a better company. There are very few companies that I've watched go through the process where their accounting hasn't gotten better, their reporting hasn't gotten better, and, and frankly, the management and board's understanding of the company hasn't gotten better. I think that's absolutely right. Now, you've been working to replace the highly debated, long-time politicized Department of Labor's fiduciary rule with regulation best interest for investment advisors. You said that public comments will be crucial in shaping the agency's rule, and you just finished seven public roundtables 
around the country to discuss your proposal. What stood out for you in these discussions? I loved the public roundtables. It was just great to ask people, what do you expect from your financial advisor, your financial professional? What what do you want from this relationship? Um, And we got a lot of good answers to that that have helped um, shape our our thinking around the rulemaking. Uh, But I want to digress, and I'm going a bit out of my lane here. The one common theme, wherever we went in the country, and whether we were talking to somebody in their 30s or in their 70s, um, their, their economic circumstances were they wish that they had known more about our markets and investing earlier in their life, that this is, this is a part of American society that has become important. Uh, we have a great responsibility to save for our own retirements. Um, and people uh, universally said, hey, Jay, you know, if you can do something about getting people better educated about investing in our markets earlier in their lives, please do it. It, it, it was surprising to me how universal um, and how, um, I would say, just how emotional that feeling was from the many people I talked to. You recently called for an end to high-pressure product-based sales contests that encourage brokers to recommend certain products. Do you think there's a formal regulation about to come with respect to sales contests. So let me, let me go back to your question about what I learned from, <clears throat> from talking to people. People understand that when you have an investment professional, there are going to be conflicts. An investment professional is going to get paid. They're interested in getting paid. Um, and there are different types of conflicts. What they also have told me is, we expect the investment professional to be aware of those conflicts and deal with them in a reasonable way. So. You know, for a commission, you disclose the commission. Um, you you make sure that it's not out of line with the market. But Chairman Levitt, there are some conflicts that it's impossible to reasonably mitigate. That it's impossible to reasonably address. And my own view is that high pressure, product specific sales contests. If I sell you, if I sell you and a bunch of your friends something by the end of this week, I get a big bonus. It's impossible for me to reasonably mitigate that conflict. I'm putting my interests ahead of yours, almost invariably, if that's that kind of compensation scheme. And so that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, along the spectrum of conflicts that are inherent in any kind of professional advisory relationship, there are some that you just can't mitigate, you gotta eliminate. This fall, Jay, you will host a roundtable about whether the commissions proxy rules should be refined. What issues do you see around proxy voting in general? Chairman, I think there are two things as a way to get, uh, as a way I get my head around this. There is the, what people refer to as the plumbing or the architecture or the way voting works in our marketplace. It's out of date. There are very few people who wouldn't agree with the way that we go about voting being out of date and, uh, the opportunity for modernization. Then there, then there are questions about uh, the rules of voting and how we vote and um, who's responsible for voting and uh, fiduciary obligations around voting. I think we should look at both aspects. Um, I know that we want to get to fixing the plumbing, 
but I also think we need to look at some of the issues that uh, people have identified in voting, including the use of uh, proxy advisory firms, including the ability to vote when maybe you don't have economic exposure to the stock, um, issues such as that. More than a dozen members of Congress recently sent you a letter asking for a clearer picture of how the Commission views the digital asset class and what criteria you're using to determine under what circumstances the offer and sale of a digital token should properly be considered an investment contract and therefore an offer or sale of securities. Stakeholders fear a lack of clarity could cause innovation to flee overseas. Do you expect an answer soon? So the, the, the letter from Congress um, highlights really what we've been trying to do in this space, which is bring clarity. I'm going to be happy to join with my colleagues from our Division of Corporation Finance and our Division of Trading and Markets to, uh, to provide those members with a response. But this is something we've been doing on a, on a day-in, uh, day-out basis. Uh, we have made it clear that we think our securities law framework is a solid one and that these new digital assets uh, can fit within it but also need to uh, abide by it. I always say we've built a $19, $20 trillion economy that's the envy of the world following some fairly straightforward laws about the offer and sale and trading of securities. That said, we are open for business. If people have interpretive questions, they can come see us. Um, and I believe that my colleagues, again, in the Division of uh, Corporation Finance and Trading and Markets are regularly updating the market on these issues. But I'm very, look, I, I, one of the things I've learned is that dialogue with Congress is valuable for everyone. Um, and so I welcome the letter. We're going to be responding. And uh, in the meantime, if people have questions, uh, we're open for business. The Winklevoss brothers are creating a self-regulatory group for cryptocurrencies called the Virtual Commodity Association. And that's meant to work with regulators. The CFTC and the SEC have traditionally relied on self-regulatory organizations to monitor trading. So do you welcome this industry trying to regulate itself? I think, I think a broad answer to your question <clears throat> is, we always welcome people trying to be responsible. But are we in the business of turning over regulation to industry groups? Not often. The SEC has been vigilant in pursuing illegal activity in the market for ICOs, initial coin offerings. Why do you focus so much on ICOs, and how long before retail investors will feel comfortable investing in this product? Well, why are we focusing on ICOs? I might turn the question a bit and say, uh, why are we focusing on unregistered public offerings? And that's what many, if not all, of the ICOs that I've seen are. They are unregistered public offerings of securities. That's a fundamental aspect of our securities laws. If you're going to make a public offering of securities, you either have to register it with us, provide financial statements, take responsibility for the offering, or you have to find an exemption. 
we are working with people to help them register ICOs or find an exemption, but those who have sought to do neither are exactly the people who we should be focused on. The Commission has issued guidance calling on public companies to be more forthcoming when disclosing cybersecurity risks. But the two Democrats are said to be disappointed with what they see as the Commission's too limited action. How do you address their concerns? Well, let me say that we, we all um, believe that encouraging companies to do two things. Um, then there's two aspects to this, Chairman Levitt. One is what I would call the prophylactic uh, disclosure of saying, here's how our company works, here's how cyber affects our company, here are the risks that we face from our dependence on information technology systems. Um, you as an investor should be aware of these risks. I think we've been clear and I think companies are improving. When I first got to the commission, when I looked at that disclosure across the marketplace, I was not happy with it. I did not think that companies, um, as a general matter, were informing their investors of the risks that cyber issues present for those companies. I think that's improved. Then there's the question of if you have a cyber incident, what are the criteria for when and how you disclose it? We, we have been trying to provide guidance in that area. Those are, by their very nature, idiosyncratic events. So it is difficult to provide precise guidance in the abstract for those idiosyncratic events. What I do say is if you have an incident, err on the side of disclosing it early and as comprehensively as possible. Before becoming the chairman of the SEC in 2017, he was a partner at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, and a lecturer in law and adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Since joining the commission, he has proposed a package of new rules for a fiduciary standard for broker-dealers. He's fighting fraud in the ICO tokens market and looking at allowing retail investors access to private investments. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net, and follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. 